Hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is May 1st, 2013. This is episode 1121, 1121 of the Survival Podcast. I've got a good one for you today. Back into our interviews, Darby Simpson, owner of Simpson Family Farm and uh, owner of the website DarbySimpson.com, is going to be on today to talk to us about pastured poultry and pork and grass-fed beef. And I want to point out to you guys uh, that uh, we'll talk a little bit about it during the interview, but most of it's going to be nuts and bolts. Darby is now doing consulting. So if you are looking to really ramp things up on your homestead or you're looking to do things commercially, specifically with uh, with uh, poultry, pork, and beef, turkeys, uh, anything like that, uh, Darby is now available for uh, professional consulting. And I also want to point out to you guys that are part of the Member Support Brigade, Darby does support the Member Support Brigade. And if you uh, need us consulting and you're an MSB member, you get a discount on it. So that's pretty cool. I'll have Darby on in just a minute, though. Before we get to that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is Ready-Made Resources. There's not much more you can ask for from a company than for their name to say what they do, then have them do it consistently every time over and over again. That's what you'll get from Robert and his crew over at Ready-Made Resources. All the resources you need for your prepping, ready-made, ready to go. Point, click, buy, and have it shipped to you with great service and great pricing. And I do mean everything. If you need stuff like 12-volt appliances to go along with those solar and wind projects, you got them there. You want the tactical stuff? Uh, if you have an FFL, you can have stuff shipped to you. you. Want guns and gear? No problem. Check. Got that too. Long-term storage food? Got that. Gardening tools? Got that. Stuff to convert your own food into long-term storage food, like pressure canners and dehydrators? Got it. Basically, you get what it is. It's all the resources you need, ready-made, ready to go. Ready-made-resources.com. Next up today, bulkammo.com. There's what I call a triangle. Uh, within the being an armed citizen, and if any one of those corner, uh, angles of that triangle are not there, you might as well not be armed at all. Uh, the first one is have a gun. Uh, if you're going to be armed with a weapon, you, you got to have one. If you don't have one, you're well, you're screwed because you don't have a gun. Therefore, you're not an armed citizen. That's pretty obvious. The second one that's not so obvious is training. Uh, there's a lot of people that go out. Uh, maybe they watch some TV shows. Maybe they even get a little bit of uh, you know person-to-person training. But good quality training and the operator that goes along with being that armed citizen. So you yourself, your training and your knowledge and your skill set. If you don't have that, well, you've got a problem as well. And the last one is ammo, because you can be a really great operator and you can have a really great gun, but if uh, you don't have any ammunition, what you have is a really expensive club or maybe something you can pawn to make a little bit of money on, but you don't have a gun without ammo. And that means you need lots of ammo. You don't just need ammo in case there's, I don't know, an ammo shortage where it gets ridiculously expensive and it's hard to come by. You need ammo on a day-to-day basis so you can run that gun and train and work on that one corner of the triangle, right? You've got to have that operator capability and training. And uh, if we ever go through a situation where uh, where it's hard to get ammo or gets very expensive, like you know just happened, it could be worse. 
Uh, ammo prices have begun to uh, level and come down. This is a good time to stock up. There's a lot of great stuff over at BulkAmmo.com. All the common calibers are in stock as of this morning, at least when I check. So check them out today at BulkAmmo.com. And remember how I told you guys over and over and over again to stock up on ammo before the last shortage. It makes sense to do it when the prices are down. Buy high, or not buy high, buy low and shoot when it's high, right? Instead of uh, buy low and sell high. Anyway, next up today, I do want to remind you guys about walkingtofreedom.com. That forum is growing uh, pretty quick over there. And Walking to Freedom is where you can help others find a new home. People that are in states like Illinois, New Jersey, and California that want a better life with more freedom and less taxation and less onerous government. This is a republic. The final act of a republic is voting with your feet. Also want to mention something I haven't mentioned for a while. We need to uh, keep keep on this, guys. It's 13skills.com. That's the uh, website Dorothy is now running. Uh, get on over there, set your goals. If you've uh, if you've accomplished some of them, get over there and update them. I will tell you that programmer David Larson is working his butt off on version two of the site. It's going to be a lot cooler. You're going to be able to have mentors, rate mentors, interact with each other, see updates of the people that you're following, uh, and do a lot of other cool things. It'll kind of be like a light version of Facebook just for the skills arena without Big Brother looking over your shoulder and collecting your data. How cool is that? 13skills.com. Do get involved if you can. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members, and you get discounts to over 40 vendors, including a discount program for BulkAmmo.com and DarbySimpson.com, which we'll be talking about in just a second. Uh, before we uh, do that, though, I do want to remind you on the Member Support Brigade, if you're military... Law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty or prior service, or a first responder like an EMT, a paramedic, or a firefighter, anybody in that vein. If you will email me before, not after you join, put service discount in the subject line and tell me a little bit about your job, what you're doing now or what you did in the past, just a couple sentences, I'll send you a discount code that will save you even more money on the MSB. If you do it before, not after, you join the support brigade. If you do it after, I can give you the discount code for next year. You guys are supposed to be procedural in that line of work. Anyway, with that wrapped up, let's go ahead and uh, get into the main topic of our uh, show. And uh, with that, hey, Darby, man, welcome back to the Survival Podcast. Hey, Jack. Thanks for having me back. It's, uh, it's great to be on on the show again. Well, I'm, I'm glad to have you back, and uh, you're one of the people that's out there actually doing this stuff and doing it for a living, and you uh, you actually made a transition to that. And for those that maybe haven't heard your uh, previous uh, interviews, uh, could you give us, like, the, you know, the, the, the two-minute elevator speech? Who is Darby Simpson, and uh, what do you do for a living right now? Okay, well, the yeah, the, the short, short version is um, I grew up on my family farm, and uh, the first inclination of of wanting to farm when I was like five or six years old, my grandfather said, go do something else. And that's what I did. I went and did something else, became a mechanical engineer. And I was pretty, pretty successful with that. Um, had a really good career going, but then just really felt, felt led to really wanting to, you know, start farming. And, um, uh, seven years ago, we, we kind of, uh, picked the path and that ended up being, um, pasture based meats and read a bunch of books by Joel Salatin and, and started with some chickens and um, started with 50 birds, which is what he suggests doing. And we just kind of built it from there. And then uh, a couple, three years into it, I actually got laid off from the uh, the engineering gig. Um, 
and we just hit the accelerator on the farm and ramped it up. And now today, it's it is uh, my full time occupation. And the engineering thing is is a consulting business that I do in the winter when I'm slow. And um, we have a lot of fun with the farm. We're actually doing uh, you know broilers for meat. Uh, we do turkeys for Thanksgiving, pastured pork. Uh, grass-fed beef, and at some point we're, we're wanting to add lamb, and eventually we want to start experimenting with rabbits. Very cool, and, and I want to kind of go through the, the stuff you're doing now with you, kind of one animal at a time, uh, but what I wanted to kind of get your opinion on, uh, right now I am working on an article uh, for people that want to go into uh, farming professionally, and the reason I'm doing it is I feel kind of an obligation to do it. Um, I cover so much on self-sufficiency and food production that I inspire, uh, you know, a few people a month that are emailing me going, I want to become a full-time farmer. And uh, I'm like, well, I'm not the person to tell you exactly how to do that because that's not what I do. I'm a full-time podcaster, and that's different from being a farmer. I produce a lot of food for myself, but I sell nothing. But I do think I have an understanding of the marketplace as a marketer. And key and central to this article is going to be, if you want to be in this business for profit today, the sweet spot, the place to come into it is with meat production. And it seems like that's what you're doing. And it just seems to me that it's easier to sell pastured poultry and grass-fed beef than it is peppers and tomatoes and make a profit. What say you? Um, yeah, I mean, I think if you're smart about it, um, there, there's definitely a lot less competition with meat. Because uh, it's, it's easier to get started with vegetables, you know. I mean, that being said, I know a lot of vegetable farmers, especially guys that are doing greens and root vegetables and berries and fruits that are really successful. Um, but there's a lot less competition with meat, and it is a it is a good place to uh, enter in. It's just a totally different dynamic, you know. I mean, not not that there's not heartache if you get a you know great big patch of, of spinach that you're wanting to sell at the farmers market, and it gets wiped out by too much rain or insects or whatever, well, you just kind of till it under and, you know, or chop and drop and start over. Um, you know, with, with meat, that's not the case. I mean, when something goes wrong, that usually means it's dead and uh, you don't have a saleable product anymore. So there's a little bit more risk involved in that regard, um, and that's something people need to really take into account. Yeah, I agree, but I would also say that let's say that I don't have a buyer for my chickens this week, assuming I'm not raising Franken-chicken that has to be killed this week, and even then I can still freeze it and sell it as a frozen product, uh, I can delay sale. Yep. But if I have spinach, man, there's not a big market for frozen spinach. And I, you know what, when I grew up as a little kid, I thought spinach was the worst crap in the world. I wanted nothing to do with it. Because that's what my, my mother served me was frozen, wet, gross, slimy spinach. I didn't even know there was fresh spinach until my uh, Aunt Kathy made me a spinach salad when I was about 12 years old. So there is that whole store on the hoof for another day. There is. And, it, it you know, it's like when I go to the farmer's market, whatever I don't sell, I bring home and I put it back in the freezer. And sure. it, goes, it goes with me next week. And you're right. With, with produce, I mean, once it's time for that to be harvested, it's got to go. You know, it's, you don't have that that uh, flexibility to, to store it unless you're talking about, like, winter squash, you know, which is one yeah. of the few things that you can do that with. So that leads right into kind of getting started with with, uh, with animals, and that's a big part of what you do, so that's what we're going to cover today. And on your philosophy, um, kind of what I just mentioned right there, 
What are your thoughts? With we'll start with chickens because I know you do a lot with chickens. Cornish cross versus heritage breeds, and what are you using? Um, so yeah, it's, you know, there's there's two different aspects of this, and for anybody out there listening, um, it's you know what what are you what are you going to do? Is this you know for your family? Are you a homesteader, or are you really thinking about this as a business? And I'm not going to tell you that you can't create a business using a slower growing bird or a heritage bird. You can. Um, it's just there's a lot more labor involved, and you just get to charge accordingly for your time is, is the main thing. So, you know, the, the Cornish Cross is what we started with, and it's what most people use when they get into this. Um, and listen, I, I am not the best guy out there raising chickens on pasture. I mean, there are people that know tons more than I do. Um, I think I've just got a bit of a knack for articulating what I do the average guy so that he can go out and try it and be successful with it. Um, the Cornish cross comes loaded with problems. They were not designed or bred to be raised on pasture. They're designed to sit in a cage for 35 days and get really fat really quick, and they, they do that efficiently. We use them on pasture just because you're, you go, you're still going from 35 days to 60 days, 65 days, some cases even 70 you, you've got to turn that product out quickly just to kind of keep your labor in check. I mean, if you're using a heritage bird, you're looking at 14, 16, 18 weeks. I mean, you double your labor at least. And at least where the market is today, nobody's going to pay me for that labor. I mean, it's, it's tough enough trying to get my labor out of a bird that's, you know, eight to nine weeks old, let alone trying to get my money back from a bird that's, you know, 16 or 18 weeks old. Um, I actually had some people ask for heritage birds a few years ago, and so I did a little test run, and uh, we, we bought some some heritage cockerels and raised them. It, it took about 18 weeks, and they were still smaller than the Cornish cross. And um, uh, you know, I got done and put the price tag on them, and these people that ordered them refused to pay for them, and they were really good customers. I mean, they were people that bought local food on a weekly basis, and it yeah. was just, they, they couldn't hack the price. So, I, I think um, that's the case. Like, everybody has their limit. I I paid about $18 for a chicken yesterday, you know? I mean, and I was willing. To, it was a, a pretty good-sized bird. It was about a five-pound bird, um, and I was willing to do that. But if you want to sell me one for $24, I – start really thinking about that hard right yep um so that's you know that's that's the big deal between cornish and, and heritage and you know what what i'm using now um there is a kind of i don't want to call it a startup but they're a smaller hatchery and we'll give them a, a little little publicity here uh snG poultry out of alabama absolutely terrific phenomenal people to work with and the guy that started the hatchery, he's actually bred all of his own chickens from the start. He was in what we you would they call white bird world. He he was working for one of the big huge conglomerates and he got out, he started his own little hatchery. And he has developed what he calls a heritage white. It is still a quick growing broiler. Um it but it, it grows slower than a Cornish. It does it does take me a little bit more time. To get one of these birds to wait, they don't they don't finish out quite as big as the Cornish, but man, the the, uh, 
there are, is just a huge number of problems that are not uh, prevalent in this bird that are prevalent in the Cornish. And it's still a quick-growing bird. I mean, it's still not ideal. I mean, from an idealistic standpoint of using no grain and just letting the bird frolic around and get 80% of their intake from the land, I mean, we're not, we're not there yet. But it's way better than the Cornish, and I, I feel like at least it's, it's taking pasture poultry in the right direction. Well, I'm on their site right now, and a bird that's really piqued my interest in the uh, in the past couple months has been the Red Ranger. Yep, I figured that's what you were looking at when you said that. So, yeah, yeah what are your thoughts are, on those? Yeah, I you know I haven't used any of those birds from okay. him. Um, what what he told me, I actually when I started using the birds, I actually called and I talked to the, the owner for like an hour on the phone. I called one day and he called me back. Um, he told me that, you know, if, if the heritage white takes you, you know, eight or nine weeks, he said nine, if it takes nine weeks to raise, he said, this bird's going to take you probably 12, 13 weeks, and it's probably going to be four pounds, not four and a half pounds. And it's, it's got a traditional breast on it. It's not a double-breasted uh, bird that most American consumers are, are used to. But I know that he had one guy that was raising like 10 or 20,000 of those Per year, this was two years ago. Um, well, you've got to be selling them because you're not gonna you're not gonna do that for very long unless you have a market. No, he had a market. I want I want to say he was plugged into like a Whole Foods or, or okay. something along those lines. But it might be what I bought yesterday because I bought that bird from Central Market, which is like the Whole Foods version of the HEB chain. Okay, and and, and we we cooked that bird as soon as we brought it home. Right, and, and it had that smaller breast. Right. So, I, you know, I would say that as a homesteader, if you're wanting to do chickens, I, I would say absolutely don't get Cornish Cross. I just okay. I wouldn't even mess with them. I would say try the Heritage White. He developed those from Delaware uh, cockerels, um, which, you know, 50 years ago, the Delaware was the broiler industry bird before they started jacking with them. Um, and, you know... They're they're a really good birds. So if you want something that grows a little faster, that's got that double breast, I'd say try those. If you're willing to take a little bit more time, you're just doing this for yourself. You want to raise 25 or 50 birds, or, or maybe even want you want to raise I don't know 200 birds a year, and that's it. All you're going to do, you're going to sell them to friends and family. You might look at one of the Red Rangers. I, I've heard really good reports about them. Like I said, I have not personally used them. Um, but I think that's a very viable option, especially for somebody that's raising their own meat or just wanting to sell a little bit extra on the side. Yeah, I, I think that makes sense, too. And I, I think that if you are homesteading only, I, we, you can move more towards some of the uh, heritage breeds and, uh, and be okay with it because I'm not trying to make a profit. Exactly. Right, so if I'm going to raise 26 birds, one every other week for, for the table... I, I'm in a totally different world, and even with a longer-growing bird, it's still costing me less than going out and buying a pastured bird. Yes, it will. It, it will. And I'll tell you what, you'll, you will appreciate and not have an issue spending the money on a pastured bird if you raise it yourself one time. Uh, the, um, the bird that I'm thinking of that... that you know, was like the first time I ever saw birds butchered that were not a traditional meat bird. It was a bird called the Kosher King. I'm not familiar, sure if you're familiar with them at all. Uh, but Ben Falk raised about 50 of them. And during his PVC, we butchered them. 
And there was a guy that came to do the class on the butchering, and he's like one of these guys that like he'll come to your farm and do the butchering for you. And it's what he does every day of his you know every day of his existence that there's birds to butcher as he goes out and butchers birds. And when he did these birds, he said I'd never he, he'd never seen a bird that healthy on the inside as what he saw with those birds compared to anything designed to grow faster. Right. They were also harder to butcher. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure pulling the feathers out was a blast. The feathers weren't bad. We had one of the uh, washing machine style, you know, feather pluckers. But uh, whiz bang plucker. Yeah, but when he when he you know we bled them out, but then when he cut the head and went to pull the the head off of them, it was kind of funny because you could tell it was a guy that was used to just slamming through them, you know, right. and uh, it wasn't quite that easy. I'm trying to think. There's there's a that kosher king. I've heard of those, and there's a hatchery in Pennsylvania that sells those. They're like a gray and white. They have like a kind of a mottled appearance to them. Uh, right. And there was a rain there was another ranger a few years ago that there was came a, from them. There, yeah, there was like a red ranger and there was like a gray ranger. And I think these kosher kings may and I could be wrong. Uh, somebody feel free to correct me. But I think those actually came out of those gray rangers. I I'm pretty sure that they are one of the ranger birds. So, so yeah. I think the Rangers are a happy medium, basically, is what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think it's all about what people want, but I, I, I'm, a, I'm with you. I think that you need to do something in the um, birds raised for commercial broiler production if you want to make a living today. Yes, yeah, yeah, you, you really do. I mean, it's just, you know. Because that's what you're competing with. It is. It's, you know, and that's, again, it's not to say that you, you won't find a market for a more expensive bird. Um, you know, it, look, 10 years ago, I couldn't have, I couldn't be doing what I'm doing now in central Indiana. I mean, if I would have tried to sell somebody a chicken for, you know, 18 or 22 bucks, they, they would have looked at me like I had three heads. Sure. Um, so, you know, in 10 more years, uh, who knows? I mean, maybe uh, we'll progress to a point uh, with our food and our food systems that people are willing to do that. They're willing to pay the labor for a more natural chicken, like one of these kosher kings or red ranger, that takes longer to raise. Maybe we can offset some of the cost, but since they eat less grain, they do range more. Um, you know, maybe, maybe there's a, a way that that works out in the future. I, I don't know. But right now, I don't see it. I don't know of any example of it. I'll tell you what I think. To get there, this is what's going to take. It's going to take two things. It's going to take an evolution of, okay, what are we creating for the chicken, right? So what cross can we come up with, or what breed characteristics can we instill? And if we can breed a chicken that is a fast-growing chicken but still is capable of being bred and reproduced so we can start proving out traits without that chicken getting congestive heart failure by the time it's 18 months old, we, we can start to head in that direction. The other thing is going to be coming up with a way to improve the pasture, with specific seed mixtures that are going to provide more for the chicken off the range because we're multiplying the effect of the seed versus feeding it directly. And it's going to take those two things together to get where you're talking about. But, I, again, I'm not a guy that sells chickens for a living, so I don't know, but that's my gut. Yeah, I, I would agree. And the first thing that pops into my mind is, okay, well, do we have to have dedicated pastures now? I mean, what, what are we planting? And I'm just kind of theorizing here. And is a cow going to want to eat that? Or is exactly. a sheep going to eat that? Because that pasture has got to be used by multiple animals. It's not a, yep. it's not a mono 
culture for animals, just like it's you know not a monoculture for, for plants. It's it is a polyculture in every sense of the word. Correct. Correct. And we kind of just real quick. I mean, I had Paul Wheaton on. He was on and on about he doesn't like trackers, and I was on and on about how you just you're worried about it's a chicken in the end. It's a chi- it's it's a chicken. It's not a child, right? You're doing your birds in in tractors, right? Yes, in chicken tractors. Um, and I actually been catching up on the back episode. I, I listened to that one uh, not too long ago. And all of you're listening, I love you, man. I love what you have to offer. But some of your stuff, I was I was like screaming out in the middle of my field while I'm moving my chickens, listening to you talk. Um, I don't know where uh, chicken tractors sitting still until this earth was. Scorched came from. I don't know if that's a Jeff Lawton thing or if you're trying that's, to. Well, that's a totally different thing than raising chickens for meat or even eggs. Right. Okay. If, so if I want to strip the earth with a chicken, that group of chickens that do that for me are not going to do that day in and day out every day of their life. There's going to be a place that I'm going to go, I want this taken down, right? And I'm going to put those birds in there and they're going to do that job. Right. And then I'm going to put them into a more conventional system after that, and they may go do it again for me four months later. And usually I'm going to use, probably going to use layers in that arrangement, but I don't know, maybe I'll be using some meat birds. They'll be fed well. And the other thing that Paul never mentioned when he talked about this is I am literally going to be heaping some sort of an organic mulch into that system while they're doing their job. And I'm going to do that for something like, stripping down land to change it into a totally different pasture, using a chicken as a plow, or more likely to establish a food forest. And okay. that, that chicken's not doing that. But the big thing is that chicken's not doing that day in, day out, every day of their life. He's, he's a, the chicken's now a tool. He's done his job. He goes back to having his nice, cushy chicken life. Okay. That, that's that system. Okay, yeah. I mean, a chicken tractor, I mean, you, you know, for the for the listeners out there, you're going to hear the term chicken tractor a lot today, and, a chicken tractor, at least in my circles, coming from the, the Joel South and school of philosophy, if you will, is those birds get moved every day. And as they get mature near the end, just kind of depending on the condition, you might be moving them twice a day. Sure. And yeah, your stocking density is a lot higher, but um, they are broilers, they're meat birds, so they, they don't graze as well as a, as a laying in. And we're, we're, we're moving them for two reasons. We want to get them off of yesterday's excrement. We want to spread that manure around. That is pure nitrogen that makes the grass go grow like crazy. And quit growing grass and we back out. Um, the, other, the other thing we're trying to do is by moving them, we're trying to make them ingest as much green material as possible, which would be that ice cream that Paul talked about in his interview, uh, you know, so that we can cut down on our feedback. But we never, ever bare earth is bad. And that's what I was screaming about. No, 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 no bare earth in any system for any reason. The only time I have bare earth hurt here is when I'm using pigs, kind of like what you're talking about, in a really dense, thick, nasty area of forest. And I'll, I'll leave them in there until they just absolutely trash it. And they take out all the little saplings and the briars and the thickets and, and all that garbage and let sunlight come in. Uh, and then we let the, the, the natural seed bank come back and reestablish with grasses beneath that so that we've got something better to use the next time they go through. Now, I mean, my other side of this with the tractoring, especially with chickens, chickens are a relatively small animal. And if I want to get the effect of something we're going to talk about later called mob grazing, 
I need to put them in a pretty high density, and I need to put them in a pretty small area per bird to get that effect. Yeah. Where, with cattle, it's easier. I can electro-fence it and do more of a paddock shift, and I've got a bigger, more earth-moving, trampling, shitting animal, right? But yep. with a chicken, I, I'm in a totally different situation. So, like, what are the size of your tractors and how many birds are in one? Uh, so our tractors are they're 10 foot wide and they're they're 12 foot long. It's pretty, um, it's pretty good size, 120 square feet. And just as an aside here, I, I can't remember the episode, but we had a expert panel question a few months ago. A guy called in, and maybe we could link that in the show notes, where I've got photos of my chicken tractors and like drawings how you put the thing together. So anybody wants to take a look at it, they can. Um, but anyhow, we'll you know we'll put like. 85 birds in one of those, something like that, maybe 90. It kind of depends on how many come out of the brooder. Um, so that they've got about, you know, one and a third to one and a half square foot per bird, roughly. Okay. That's kind of what we're looking at, which doesn't sound like a whole lot. But when you're moving them every day or sometimes twice a day, um, you know, it's, it's just not a big deal. That's like having a high number of cattle per acre and you're moving them once a day or twice a day. Because, I mean, I know you're a fan of the work that Greg Judy does. Um, I love Greg Judy. Greg Judy is an awesome guy. I actually got to meet him at a conference last year. But, I mean, I've looked a lot into what Alan Savory's done, yes. uh, which I think is a very similar thing, only he's doing most of his work in the third world uh, and, and parts of, like, Mexico and all, which are, I don't know, I'd say it's like it's not third world, it's not first world. It's maybe se- I don't know if anybody uses the term second world, but maybe it's a second world environment. Right. But two different areas, but the same type of uh, solution and I know Alan is putting animals in at a density 400% higher than recommended, but they're held in that density and they're moved daily. Yes. And, and to me, if you want to get that effect from chickens, you have to do something similar. Yeah, you're building soil. And just as an aside, Greg Judy um, actually has a good friend from South Africa uh, who comes from the Alan Savory School. So he's definitely in that, that holistic management, that HMI program, um, which is why the, they seem so similar, because he has studied Alan Savory extensively. Okay, that, that makes sense to me, because I know when I first found Judy, I was like, wow, this is so close, but it just seems to be Americanized, is all it was. Yeah, it is, it is. There's actually another guy, uh, like maybe an hour from Greg Judy in, in Missouri, his name Cody Holmes. Um, he's also written a couple of books, his conferences and stuff, really sharp guy. Um, he, he does the same thing, and he's a holistic management guy as well. So if you, you know, if anybody wants to see these systems, you know, domestically on a large scale, that those are two operations to look at. They're running hundreds of cattle and putting them on, you know, like an acre, an acre and a half and moving right. them twice a day. And what, what Greg Judy says, and I don't want to get too far ahead here, though, with our grass, is if you want your cows to eat 60%, trample 30%, and leave 10% standing. Got you. So 10% built, your, what they call your litter. That's your, exactly. that's your nurse. That's, that's in, in, in food forest speak, that's your canopy that shelters the next generation. Absolutely. And you, you're making a home for earthworms. That's what it's yeah. all about. Yeah, and you're keeping air underneath that space, too. Um. Just real quick on your chicken tractors, I found the episode, 876. I'll put a link in today's show notes for everybody. I'm looking at your chicken tractor. So, like, right now I've got my birds in kind of a coop and run scenario, and Paul can suck wind. I don't care. They're happy. They're fine. It's a huge run. 
Uh, but they go in their house every night, and they, I've built perches for them, and they're happy and, and whatnot. Um, what I never actually really got from you is what's like the inside of one of your chicken tractors like? Is this, It's just basically they're sleeping on the ground? Yes. Yeah, no, it's, there's no floor whatsoever. Um, you get about a third of it that's kind of open air, if you will. I mean, there's chicken wire to keep the predators out. And then two-thirds of it is covered uh, with a couple of tarps. You're uh, using, like, cattle panels with chicken wire over them? Yep. Is that what you're yep. talking you about? Yeah, three 16-foot-long okay. cattle panels uh, make our 12-foot dimension. And then two 8-foot-by-10-foot uh, uh, silver tarps from good old Walmart, and that gives them shade. So they have shade or sun. It's up to them where they want to be. Okay. Um, let me ask you this then. I built a tractor for my 17 birds this year. Um, when they were too little to be out at night uh, at all, or they should have been in a brooder, but they were big enough to be out during the day, especially in my climate, right? I've never seen the video, yeah. Yeah, right. So that 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 is about 44 inches, a little under 4 feet, by about 7.5 feet. I can move it by myself, no problem. But uh, when I wanted to, like, move it, Instead of just a little bit, pick it up and carry it. And and if I had another me, it would have been easy. But when I said to my wife, pick up the other end, wasn't happening. Uh, the size you're talking about must be quite heavy. What do you do to facilitate the movement of that? Are you using a tractor to move it? Or do you have another big guy I don't know about on your property? Or are there wheels or some kind of uh, under-the-tractor log motion, like uh, moving a pyramid stone? What, what are you doing? Because it's got to be pretty heavy. It is pretty heavy, and I wish I had another big guy on my property because my life would be a whole lot easier. Um, but, no, I, I tell you, it's uh, so each of the, the ends, um, well, so in the 12-foot dimension, uh, the, the ends are beveled, so it's kind of kind of like a runner, a skid. And then the 10-foot dimension, we actually set those two by fours about an inch and a half off the ground, and then we put blocking up against those to keep predators out. So that gets the... That gets that ten foot dimension off the ground, if you will. Okay, so and you're saying the front, the front yeah. doesn't make ground contact. No, so the front and the back don't make ground contact. And then what I do is I put a two wheel dolly underneath that, and it is a heavy bugger. I mean, it's a my upper body strength is pretty good. Um, you know, it, it's heavy to move, but I just I wanted something that you know we we get in central Indiana we get winds or straight line winds seventy seventy five miles an hour. Okay. And I wanted something that wasn't going to fly away real easily. Um, I have had a move, but only one time in three years um, have they moved more than like just a couple inches. So they're they're pretty sturdy. One of my listeners suggested taking like a one and a half piece of P, one and a half inch piece of PB stick C stick, which at at a ten foot dimension you'd have a hard time finding one. You have to build one. I'm um, putting it in the front and back, and I tried that. It worked easy. I mean, you can push it with one finger. Yeah, I think for a smaller tractor that would work. I think something, yeah. something the size of mine, it'd be pretty difficult. Mm-hmm. I mean, you still got to lift the thing up to get the PVC underneath it. Yeah. And then yeah. My, got, my other problem, though, Darby, was like the one time I moved it by myself, I ended up like I moved it and I was all, and I just drug it by myself. It's not that big. And then also I hear and one of the little Faomi chickens, I ended up with his foot pinned under the tractor, and I felt really bad about it. Uh, do you have issues with that where you ever end up with uh, pinning a bird when you're done moving it? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of a stop and start process. I got you. Um, you know, and as the birds get older, they actually kind of get used to it. and They learn. <laughs> they do learn. 
uh, even though they are stupid, stupid little critters, they do learn. When they see that fresh grass, eventually they start kind of like darting for it and going after the, the ice cream. Yeah. But yeah, I, when I'm by myself, I kind of have to stop and start walking around the front. I've got um, a, fiber, just a fiberglass rod, a cheap fence post that I keep handy, and I just kind of use it to usher them to the correct end. Um, but, uh, yeah, you got to be careful. That's one of the advantages of having an inch and a half off the ground in, the, in what's the front. And the back is yeah, because that's the direction you're moving, so that would make exactly, it less likely. Exactly, I have more issues because I have to push down on that dolly to get one end up in the air. I have more issues with them shooting out the sides. And gotcha. I set it down, and I don't see one of them there. I, I mean, I've you know, I, I've killed many, many chickens, unfortunately, over the years doing that. See, now that's my question. With like you're talking about days on pasture, right? Yeah. So when you're raising a Cornish rock cross. How many birds do you lose compared to raising something a little more hardy? And where's the break-even point? Where, yeah, I might take longer, but I get a much larger yield of, of the total number that survived till the end. Because I know you, you've told me in the past you do lose some birds to heat. Oh, yeah. That's, that's the big thing. That's the worst thing about the Cornish cross. And honestly, that's what drove me to change birds. Um, a Cornish cross can sit there when it's 105 degrees out. And you can have cold water for them to drink, and they will not get up and go take a drink. Yeah. And they just, they die. I mean, I, I, I've had, well, last summer was an anomaly, and God, I hope it, we never have another one like it. But yeah, I mean, we had one batch of chickens where we lost about 40% of them. Wow. But the heat was so intense. I mean, we were raising chickens, you know, it was like the heat index here was over 100, like 24 days in a row. And it was at the time, of course, when they were getting near maturity. And they just kept dropping. They just wouldn't drink. Um, so when I switched to those S&G Heritage Whites, I, I, I couldn't really keep water in front of them. I mean, the Cornish Cross, I filled up a five-gallon bucket in the morning. If it was real hot during the day, maybe filled up in the middle of the day and filled up even at night, and they're pretty good to go. Um, those S&G birds, I had to add a second bucket, and I was still filling the thing two, three times a day. I mean, they're drinking at least... Which means you got to give them more, but at least they're taking it. They're taking it, exactly. They're getting up and drinking it. Um, and then they don't have the leg problems that the Cornish Crosses have. I mean, I still did lose a few to heat, but it was it was a lot less. Uh, to answer your original question, you know, most people doing this on pasture will kind of plan for a loss of anywhere from, like, 3 to 10%. Kind of in that ballpark. Okay. Um, so when people hear me say that I lost all that those birds in that one batch last year, I mean that's not every batch. I, I've had batches where my losses have been less than two percent from brooder to finish. Okay. Can you real quick talk about brooding because this is a new experience for me. I I, I did chickens as a kid, uh, but I did old school chickens. Hens had chicks. You let them keep some eggs. They made new chickens every year. At the end of the year, you whacked a few chickens in their their first year. And you, you maybe culled a couple layers, and, you know, my grandmother's method of killing a chicken was to go out and grab it by its head and flip it in the air. Um, so this was the first year I had to do brooding. I had never, because if the hen didn't brood and you wanted a brooding head, and you got a new hen, and the right. old hen became soup. Right. So could you talk a little bit about what's involved with brooding, and, and is it any different when you're brooding something like a Cornish cross or Heritage White or a Red uh, Ranger Versus brooding a, a heritage chicken. Well, is it any different? No. I mean, the environment needs to be the same. Um, you you want dry, 
and, and warm. Um, it, it's got to be 95 degrees in your brooder at the floor level for the first few days of that chick's life until about, oh, six, seven, eight days of age. And then you can slowly start dropping it. Um, you've got to have really good dry litter and you got to, you now with the Cornish birds or any of the quick growing birds, what's really important is that you've got to keep food and water in front of them. That can really hamper their growth, uh, if they, if they run out at any time. But for the first, you know, two to three weeks of a chicken's life, it really doesn't matter if it's a Cornish cross or if it's a Rhode Island red or if it's a red ranger or anything in between. You, you treat them all the same. You got to keep them warm. And dry, and uh, uh, you definitely want to be giving them some uh, finely ground feed and grit. You can buy chick grit, or you can use a creek sand, uh, just so they get, can get some some hard stones in their their gizzard to get their system going. And uh, yeah, that's about all there is to it. Let me give you kind of what I did because this is where it does diverge a little bit for me with uh, a heritage breed. I had a, I don't even know if you'd call them heritage breeds because I have uh, a group of uh, red sex link pullets and uh, some straight run Egyptian faomis. This is what I did. I put them in a, uh, a stock tank, a steel stock tank with uh, in dry and warm, definitely, right? Uh, chick starter feed and water. And uh, I got a uh, heat lamp and I put it pretty close. And when I came in after they were there for about an hour, they were all on the, uh, they, they were like all, uh, like way the hell away from the light. Like it was too hot. Too warm. Yep. Right. So I packed it up and they got to the point where they were kind of like making like a halo. Like uh-huh. they weren't really in the center. And I went, okay, that's where it is. And I just left them there. Yeah. I never just... looked at the temperature. I didn't give it, I mean, just, that was it. And I just gave them water and food and cleaned out their, uh, their litter, you know, once a day and threw it in the, uh, but but again, you're looking at 17 birds or 18 birds versus you know a couple hundred. Yeah, yeah, we start 500 at a time. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, and and then like these Faomis, I, I keep talking about it just blows me away. These birds are like four weeks old and they're trying to crow. I, I mean, I've never I've never seen anything like this before, and I and I ended up with a straight run of eight. I got six cockerels. Um, so whether they make good broilers or not, uh, five of them are not going to see August. Yeah, yeah, they're going to graduate to the breeder. Yeah, they have to. I, I, just, I, I just can't see, you know, I can't see them getting along in that small of a flock. You know, I just, you, and I, I don't think they're going to be the greatest meat bird in the world either. They were just different, so I wanted to give them a shot. Yeah, but as much as they're grazing, you'll probably really enjoy the flavor. Yeah, that, oh, they're yeah, they're good on that. I, I also found out they hate roadrunners. I know you don't have them up there, but uh, we have quite a few of them around here, and they uh, they kind of come over the fence and go through our yard, and they uh, all the little cockerels run out and scream at him when he comes in the yard, and uh, but they're they're okay. It's not that big a deal. But the other day he went up in the the tree that's inside their run, and all six of the cockerels were out there, and they were pissed off. And I'm like, gee, I hope you guys don't respond this way to a hawk. Because if you do, you're just like, you're just, you know, advertising yourself to be eaten. But they're they're a real aggressive bird with anything that seems out of the normal. Yeah, so it sounds like it. Yeah, um, I, you know, with the birds I've used, you, you don't you don't get anything like that. Um, you know, I get a lot of questions too about, you know, do, do the birds have to be in a tractor? Or can we use, you know, like what Paul's talking about, bag chips and. <laughs> At least around here, I mean, it's pretty difficult. You, you can keep a small group of layers and not have to meet problems. But man, the hawks, the red-tailed hawks, which are protected under Indiana state law, and I can, I can 
walk outside right now and probably count six of them. Yeah, that that's many, always been a concern for me. Um, it, it's really difficult to uh, to do that through attic system and not have lots and lots of losses. Yeah, I don't have a lot of the red tails around here. We have these little crestals, and once the birds are, I'd say, half-grown or more, they're not that big a deal because these are a small hawk. But we have these, I don't know what kind of hawk they are, but they're kind of a brown and white hawk, and they're bad news. I mean, when I was a kid, we just called them chicken hawks. Right. And But that's not what they are. But, uh, yeah, that's always been my concern. And then you've got, you've got coyotes. You've got raccoons. I mean, both of those are, are just hell on them. Uh, weasels are ermines up north. I mean, so it seems to me that what you're doing has a lot more. I know Paul said to create a mobile coop and all, but what you're doing seems to have a lot more predator protection, at least during the daytime hours. Oh, yeah, it, it does. I mean, I have had raccoons get in, like, one time, um, and we we fixed that. You know, you, you keep learning. You think you got something figured out, and those little bastards, they, they'll find a way in. I hate raccoons. Um, but, yeah, predation, uh, I think we've pretty much got it under control. I mean, these pins are so heavy. We put yeah. hardware cloth down on the, the lower two feet on the front end that's open, and then chicken wire up above that. Uh, yeah. Keep the canine out. It, it does a it does a pretty good job. I've seen a lot of people do along the bottoms that diamond laugh stuff, and you put a paw on that, you've got a bloody paw. That's that's uh, right. that's worked pretty well for people too. Now, just real quick before we move on to pork, I know we like ate up half the show on chickens, but it's like the number one thing people do. Um, one of the reasons I'm not big on the Cornish crosses is you get to a certain day where you go out and you look at them and they all look at you with these eyes and say, please kill me. And if I'm going to raise 40 or 50 birds for home use and I'm not trying to make a living, I, I'd actually prefer to not have to process 40, 50 birds in a day. One way around that, though, would be to find a butcher. And then if you are in it for commercial production, there's there's a case for outsourcing. So what are some thoughts on that? Yeah, I, it's really just personal preference. I mean, if I was just doing it for home setting, personally, I'm, I'm the exact opposite. I'd rather just make a whole Saturday of it and be done. You know, um, that's just me, and then put them in the freezer. Um, but, yeah, if you're getting, you know, much more than 25, 50 birds, um, you know, I guess if you're butchering, if you kind of want to do it in stages. Yeah. Um, you could, you know, maybe order, you know, 20 this week and, you know, 20 next month and 20 the month after that or, or whatever, if that's what works for you. Um, there's some economies of scale, though, and just like if we won't want to raise 100 chickens, then let's just raise 100 chickens and be done and 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 get it over with. Um, but we, we do use a commercial butcher. Uh, a lot of that is because of the laws in our state. Every state's different. Um Anybody that's read South and Blue, we talked about butchering 20,000 chickens on farm in Virginia. That's completely illegal in Indiana. And wow. Yeah, it's, it's, it's totally different. Uh, you can do up to 8,000 birds per year in Indiana. And the loophole is, is that you have to sell it fresh on farm that day. Yeah, that's like the guy I was buying from I was talking about in Arkansas. Yeah. I can buy more birds for less money from him if I will go to his farm and buy them versus buying them frozen at the farmer's market. Right. So we do use a commercial butcher, but part of that is I just I didn't want to invest in all the equipment to uh, to, to butcher. I mean, we did do it the very first time that we raised Cornish crosses. We did it ourselves. We borrowed the equipment. And, man, I said, you know, I'm a farmer. I'm not a butcher. Um 
and we wanted to be able to sell this off farm without any issues with the state. And we found a butcher that's pretty reasonable to do a really nice job, and that's just part of it. I mean, we just factor that in because again, from from for our vantage point, I mean, it's a business, so it was like, well, hey, if it costs two dollars a bird, you know, to get it butchered and bagged, that's what we're going to do. We're just going to add that in. Yeah, because the the guy that the guy that uh, Ben had come out, I think he said they were charging right around two bucks a bird. It might have been two ten. It might have been a buck. I don't know what it was somewhere around there. And I'm like, man, for two bucks a bird, I come yeah, on, I I, I don't have my Saturday's worth. But if I'm doing fifty birds, right, that's a hundred bucks. My Saturday's worth more than a hundred bucks for me. But again, I'm not a commercial producer. I'm in this for the quality of the product, and I think that makes right. a difference. Right, and that's just something that each individual person is going to have to weigh. Um, something else that's really interesting about, you know, we're talking about chickens, and I'll kind of wrap up the, the chicken segment of this. Um, but one of the a guy that reached out to me after I was on the show the first time, uh, I've gotten to know pretty well. We bounce ideas back and forth off of each other and ask each other questions. And, I, you know, I remember one time we were having a conversation. I can't remember the specifics. And, it's kind of like, well, yeah, hey, how, you know, how do you do this? And I'm like, well, you know, I do it this way. He's like, I don't do it that way. I, that's, you know, I, I do it this way. And we're kind of bouncing back and forth. And finally he stops. He's like, isn't it amazing that, you know, we can have two systems that are similar, but have, yeah, have all these differences, but the birds adapt. You know, there's, there, and my point is there, there's no one way to do this. There are so many different systems out there. And, the bird, so long as we don't get in the way too much, you know, it, it's wired up to be a chicken. It's going to do its thing. And if we just give it, you know, enough enough room and enough advantage that it can go out and, and mature and be healthy and, and, and get to act like a chicken uh, until we butcher it, you know, it, it's going to take care of the rest. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, real quick, before we move on, finally on chickens. Thoughts for people that are raising birds more for eggs than uh, for meat? Um, we, we quit selling eggs. Uh, eggs are a ton of labor. Um, and then in the winter, you're, you're, you're feeding all these guys, and you're lucky to break even on the cost of the feed versus the eggs. So, I, personally, I think eggs are a great homestead thing, and that's how I view it. I mean, I'm down, we've got like 16 or 18 layers here for us, and we eat pretty much all the eggs they can produce in a week, and our family of four. Um, if you're going to do it on a commercial scale, there are some pretty neat models out there. Um, where you're, I, I like the Amish around here, we'll use a school bus, and kind of more like what Paul was talking about. They have a true paddock shift system, and they're moving that thing every day or every other day, and they're using lots of the portable poultry net and they let the birds out in the morning and they are getting 70, 80% or more of their intake from the ground. So uh, with long daylight hours in the summer, they're cranking out eggs. It's a pretty neat model um, if you you know, if you know want to sell a lot of eggs. Sure. Um, and I was so thinking more of the people raising them for their own use. Right, yeah. Um you know, if you built, like, the chicken tractor the size of ours, I mean, you could have one of those and put, you know, four or six layers in it and move it once a day, and they're going to be fine. And if you want to occasionally let them out, you know, go for it. Um, they're going to know that's the phone. They'll, they'll go up at night. Very cool, Darby. Um, pause. Do you need... All right, so we uh, we beat the chickens up pretty good. 
Yeah. And no chickens were harmed in the beating of the chickens? There were no harmed chickens during the uh, recording of this audio. But you do something else, too, man. You uh, you raise pastured pork. Uh, let's kind of move into that. So you rotationally graze your pork, and you do that mostly in your wooded areas, right? We do. We do. Um, we just kind of move them around. And, and in the past, we've used exclusively just um, uh, portable electric fencing, uh, big fence, specifically from a company called Premier, which I know other guys on the show have talked about in the past. It's a fabulous company with lots of good stuff. And we've had pretty good success with that. Um, we're actually in the process right now of building some permanent fence, kind of cutting through some areas of the woods, and then we're going to use that portable electric to subdivide those into other paddocks and rotate them around. Uh, but, yeah, we definitely keep them in the forest. I went away from doing true pastured pork um, because, well, for a couple reasons. One, a pig natural habitat is, and Sam's around 52. Okay, that's, that's fine. Um, can you... Tell me what you just finished saying, like the last sentence. Um, that we put the we, we put the pigs in the woods where they belong. Okay. All right. Okay. Cool. All right. I was just talking about the portable electric fencing from Premier, and all right. Okay, so that's cool. So you've got them moving around in the woods where the pigs belong, as you put it. You've got the electric fencing uh, for perimeter. Um, but I'm sure that in, in addition to what they're foraging on, you got to kind of feed them in water and beyond that. So how are you handling that? Especially if you're, I mean, you're, you might be a little bit further out with the pigs at some point. Yeah. So, um, I mean, what we, you know, we have our, at least, uh, for being on a commercial side, we have a little bit in bulk. Um, and what I did is I bought a couple of cheap used, like the big metal round hog feeders that you would see in a, you know, in a barn. Uh, you see them, they've got the plastic clip up and, I actually took a couple of those and I mounted them, made some uh, skids out of I treated four by fours and again kind of beveled the ends and put a couple of eye bolts on those and made a, a little towing cable. And what I do is I actually, once those are empty or want to move it, I mean, you can turn them over and roll them into place. Uh, if I got to move them a great distance, what I do is I actually pull them with my little Japanese mini truck uh, into the next paddock or if we're going into a totally different area or whatever. And then we just, uh, we, we take our bulk feed and we just fill up that feeder. And then they've just kind of got free choice. I mean, they can go out and graze in the woods uh, in the fall. They can eat nuts that are dropping, uh, or they can they can eat the uh, the custom grain mix that we give them. Um, and then in addition to that, um, what we do for the water is pretty simple, although it took me a number of years to come up with it. Because, like, pigs, they do one of two things anything they come into contact with. They eat it or they attempt to destroy it, and often they do destroy it. Um, so our watering system, what we do is we're just taking a, a hose off of our water system, and we're um, uh, running that to a, a traditional um, pig water that you can buy from a company like FarmTech. It kind of looks like an inverted Y. It's got two nipple, spring-loaded nipple uh, dispensers in the bottom of it. And I mount that to a, um, uh, a T-post with a couple of pipe clamps, and I take the hose up over the, the fence, uh, the electric fence, and then I finally, after a few years, figured out, you know, I mean, these guys, they, they're, pigs are so smart. They'll actually stand there um, and hold that that drinker open and let the water mm-hmm. run out so that they can build themselves a wallet if you don't give them one. And so I, I was all the time having to move the, the drinker around, but I finally built a little three-foot by three-foot deck. 
uh, just out of treated lumber, like one, two by four by 12, and some deck boards, and I cut a couple of notches in it. And that T post goes down through those notches, so they're actually standing on this little deck when they're digging a drink, and that that cuts way down the digging, and I don't have to move that quite as often. But it's pretty simple because they don't figure out that they could make mud by waiting longer because with the waterfalls on is wood. Exactly, exactly. I got, and you. they do still do it. I mean, I do still have to move it, but it's cut it way down because the, the problem is you their drinker they dig such a hole that eventually they can't get to the drinker to drink it. Oh yeah. They lower their access point. They do. They do. Um, they make big holes everywhere. So you got to keep moving that around. But it's pretty quick and simple. you got some garden hose and a three-pound hammer. Put another T-post on the ground. Take that dude off. Uh, loosen up your pipe clamps. Move it down the next one. Stick it on there and, and let them go at it. Um, but, yeah, the pigs do the rest. I mean, they just they, – they, they get, a, for us probably – and it's, a, it's an estimation. I'd say a third – of their intake from the land, you know, uh, might even be a little bit more than that. Obviously, in the winter, but it's, that's not the case because there's not as much greenery to eat. But we don't have as many pigs in the winter, and we try and raise most of all of our pigs between April and November. So, how many pigs and how big is a paddock? Um, those- yeah, that's. Uh, I got to say this to you. Sound like a permaculturist? That depends. Um, it depends on how big the pigs are, and it depends on what's growing in that paddock and how many grasses there are and things of that nature. Um, I've had as many as 30 pigs in an area that were 100 pounds or 75 pounds, um, and I might leave them in an area that's like, you know, and what, what I was talking about earlier where we're trying to really take out a bunch of stuff. Um I might leave them in there for three weeks or four weeks and just let them absolutely go to town. And then I've had times where I've had, you know, we're down to like, you know, six or seven pigs at the end of the season. And they might have a quarter of an acre and, you know, they're not rooting a whole lot or whatever. And, I mean, that, that might last, you know, a, a, you know, five or six weeks. It just kind of depends. Just when the land gets to where... It, uh, it, it'll get to a point where it tells you that it's time to move the pigs, unless you're trying to do something intentional like we were discussing earlier. Okay, well, that makes sense. So what about pig breeds, and how does it differ from a, a commercial producer and somebody that maybe just wants some pork for the house? Um, I've heard a lot of people talking about, you know, doing, like, Vietnamese potbelly pigs and all, and, you know, I do a lot with uh, with feral hogs because it, they, they run themselves, and you shoot one and you bring it home, and that's easy. And, I mean, the optimum size to shoot one of those before they start to get kind of rank and gamey uh, is about 80 to 90 pounds. But when I butcher one of those, and I think if I was raising this pig, I would never be butchering this pig yet. So some of those smaller breeds, to me, there's a diminishing point of returns when you're going through all the trouble to raise them, kind of like we talked about the chickens. If, if I'm just going out and, you know, I can shoot four of them in, in a night with a spotlight on a deer lease, that's different. Right, right, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, as far as the breeds, I mean, what we, we use, kind of like what we have access to, um, all the pigs we get a hold of um, are at least half Berkshire. That's just a really popular breed in Indiana. Okay. Um, 
and you know, I, in the forums and, you know, like on the TSP forums and, and other homesteading forums, I mean, I see a lot about like, well, what's the best pig breed? And I want to get, you know, this, you know, the mule foot uh, pig or the, you know, the large black or red wattle. And it's like, just go get a couple of pigs, man. I mean, yeah, I oftentimes I'll have people say, well, what, you know, what, what breed of pig do you have? Because they're really proud of what they have. My, my reply is always four legged ones with a tail. <laughs> you know? Okay. I, if you raise it in the woods and it's eating roots and tubers and tree leaves and blackberry briars, they just annihilate blackberry briars. Like the great big ones, the canes that are six foot tall that have huge thorns on them, they, they yep. decimate those. They then they just they end up tasting phenomenal. Um, so I would I would say, especially for a homesteader, the first time out, just you know, go with what you have access to. But if you can get a you know, a, a, a Berkshire or a Hampshire or an Old Spot or something like that. I mean, any of those old English breeds um, that haven't had all the, the red meat bred out of them where they're not just, you know, like the, the, where they try to get to the, the other, the white, other meat. white meat, um, yeah. you know, get something that's got some old heritage lines in it. And it doesn't have to be a purebred and just, you know, get them and stick them out there. Definitely get more than one. They're a very social animal. Uh, they hurt up, you know, and it, if you've got the, and I've said this before the last time I was on the show, if you've got the equipment to raise one, you've got the equipment to raise two or three or four. Sure. And, uh, sure. uh, you know, I had several people in Central Indiana contact me after the, the first show, and I was happy to say there are people out there raising their own pigs now, and some of them are using, like, the American Guineas, um, yep. And uh, some of them are using just, you know, some Berkshires that they got from a guy down the road that, you know, he wanted to sell a couple, you know, two or three pigs. And they're raising one for themselves, and they're, they're selling a couple, you know, to family and friends. And uh, that that income, quote-unquote, is basically kind of providing their meat for free. And I think that's a pretty neat niche as a homesteader where it's not your full-time gig. You know, if you can raise a, a pig or two for yourself and sell a couple – you know, because you're, you're raising them all at the same time and you haul them all the butcher on the same day um, and get your meat in exchange for your labor, uh, that's, that's pretty cool. Now, what I know you're giving them some supplemental feed, so specifically what are they getting for supplemental feed? It is, uh, so, okay, so as our standard protocol around here is no GMOs, so it's, it's GMO, chemical-free corn, roasted soybeans, no soybean meal. Soybean meal is nasty. If you can avert that at all costs do it get roasted soybeans which will be a little bit more difficult to find and then they get you know we have some stuff mixed in at the mill there's some mixing salt and and then our our uh, our pig mineral uh vitamin supplement which the chickens get too from a company uh, called healthier feeds out of illinois uh that just makes sure that you know whatever your land might be deficient in that they're going to get it from that mineral pack now, now, what are your thoughts on the the whole you know supplemental minerals to the pig actually improving the minerals on the land over time? Because we cycle the minerals through the animal. Yeah, over time, absolutely, absolutely. Okay. Um, the mineral supplements we use, I mean, they just they don't cost that much, and especially with the chickens, like early on and, and kind of experimenting with that, you know, five years ago it was blatantly obvious how big of a benefit those minerals were to the chicken because you're, you're watching it from start to finish in that, that eight week, nine week time frame. Yeah. And it is, it is absolutely unquestioned that you were getting a lot of benefit from those minerals. So 
So, so with the chickens, that's something I've never done before because, like, with uh, when I was a kid, we had uh, we had goats, and we would put out basically a mineral lick for them, and a goat just licks the mineral. Right. Lick. It's pretty simple, right? So, is this like a powder or something you're mixing in their feet? Yes. Yeah. It's okay. yeah, it's a powder form. Interesting. I've never done that with chickens. I'm gonna have to try that um, mineral mix for the chicken. Right. And for a small flock of layers, Jack, you know, I'm not. I'm not absolutely sure that it's something you need to do. I mean, honestly, you need to probably have some free-choice calcium for them. Well, we feed them. Uh, what we do is we take eggs, the shells, yep. and we dry them till they're just, like, bone dry, and we throw them in a blender. Okay. And we give them that for calcium and mineral supplement. But it, it still seems like something worth trying because it's not expensive, as you're saying. Right, right, yeah. So, like, some crushed oyster shell. I mean, if you're having eggs. We do that, too, oyster shells and, and eggs. Right, yeah. That's. I mean, that's all we do. Oyster shells and occasionally eggshells. Most of the eggshells honestly go into the garden compost. But we okay. keep we yeah. buy a bag of uh, pressed oyster shell and just give it to them from time to time. Really helps with um, uh, keeping them from eating eggs. Yeah. Yeah. So um, when you we kind of let's move on from the pigs now to you guys. You guys do three big things: chicken, pork, and beef. Yep. So how are you managing? You know, like. It, let's, I don't think we really said, like, how much land do you have versus how much land do you have under cultivation and then kind of what your, your herd count is with your beef. Well, yeah, that's we're actually expanding that right now. Um, we're in the process of putting up literally about 9,000 linear feet of, of five pencil fence. Um, we fenced in 12 acres last year, and we, we did some, some grazing outside of that with some temporary fencing as well, another three or four acres. And uh, we're, we're, we're fencing in right now. It's going to be an additional 18 acres. that I It was a bean field two years ago. It was in conventional beans. Um, and we took that over from our tenant farmer. Uh, it's it kind of what we've been doing since we started is just taking land back incrementally if we can afford to do so and putting it in perennial grass. And we actually planted that with our own custom mix of grasses, and uh, we're in the process of, of finishing up that, that fencing now. But uh, anyhow, our herd count at this time is only, uh, we've only got like 13 animals, but here in the next few weeks, we're going to be buying another dozen animals or so that are a year old that we'll finish out next year. So we're trying to finish about 12, maybe 14 head of beef a year right now. Just using that 30 acres. Um, okay. We did have to feed some supplemental hay due to the drought last year, which I think pretty much everyone did. But the long-term goal is to graze year-round. Okay. And, and what's uh, what's a uh, grass-fed uh, uh, cow worth or uh, you know steer worth at the end of a, you know graduation day? What, what what kind of yield is there on that monetarily? Um, they are worth a couple of thousand bucks for a 1,000 pound animal. Okay. Yeah, it's, um, we we try to keep things in check for the people that buy those. And we sell most of our beef in bulk to families. Um, there's just a, it's a huge, huge underserved market. I mean, we literally, I turn away a phone call a week, uh, for an order, um, because it's, our stuff is sold. Yeah, we built our customer base and, and uh, the people who opt in on the bulk stuff, I mean, they always have the option to stay in, you know, on a yearly basis. And like right now, somebody called me today and said, hey, I'll send you a check for deposit. When can I get beef? I would tell them, 
and let me look at things, but it'd probably be like July of 2014 if you're lucky. It is an underserved market because I know I was buying it for a long time from Rob, uh, who had several different suppliers through the you know Silver Barter Network he had, and he doesn't do it that way anymore. And when he stopped doing it, I was kind of devastated because it was back to you know buying from commercial places that say it's grass fed and. Maybe it is and maybe it isn't, and you don't really know because grass-fed is not regulated the way something like organic is in the commercial space. Right. Um, and if it's, you know, so it's hard to find. It is, and it, just because it says grass-fed, does that mean? That means it ate some grass. It, right. Was it, it, was it grass-finished? Did it ever eat any yeah. grain? Yeah. And yeah. yeah. Just like cage-free chickens, that means the chicken at some point. Busted in a cage. Right, yeah, 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 or free range. Free range means it has a popple every 75 linear feet around the exterior of a building to a fixed yard at the mud lot. Big whoop. That's what range yeah. means. So, yeah, it's just, people got to know their farmer, you know, and I know we're kind of getting into some stuff with beef where, you know, most people, you know, they, they can raise chickens and they can have some layers and, and it may if they've got a little bit of space, if they've got, you know, two or three or four acres, they can raise a couple of pigs. But when you start talking about beef, you, you got to have some land. I mean, they do eat a lot of grass. Yeah, there's a guy two houses down from me that has about 20 cows on about an acre, and he's feeding them every day. And that that is probably better than what I would get from a CAFO, but it ain't grass-fed beef. No, it's not. I mean, the health benefits aren't there. No. They're happier cows, though. They're 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 pretty happy cows. Right. I can I can tell you that. But, I mean, if my option was to eat that or to go buy beef at Kroger, I I would take that. But uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, no no doubt they're probably getting you know, Monsanto's best in the way of corn every day. Yeah, yeah. He's giving them some hay too, but they're definitely getting some grain that I think is just what it, whatever the cheapest thing he's can, he can get is, and it's either it's either Monsanto, Conagra, or Bear behind the label of that. I'm positive. <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. So yeah. So you mentioned portable, like doing some portable fencing. What's your portable equipment, you know, repertoire with the beef? So yeah, our beef system we have the high tensile electric fence for the exterior, but then on the interior um, we use portable electric fencing, and uh, we may, depending on the size of the paddock, we may have some some permanent subdivision going on. But uh, for our daily moves, we're going from from the high tensile electric using portable reels and portable uh, step-in fence posts. And what we like to use are, are, are O'Brien uh, products. We find that those work really well. Um, those were actually recommended to me by Greg Judy. And New Zealanders invented most of this rotational grazing, uh, the, the systems and the equipment. And that stuff is really well built, and it's, it's worth the money for anybody that's wanting to uh, have some portable grazing systems put in place. And then, uh, you know, for a watering system, it's real simple. It's just a float valve, a 12 or $13 float valve from a farm store connected to a garden hose and a big tub. And we just move that right along with the cows every day as they, as they uh, move through the pasture. Very cool. So I imagine you have some permanent infrastructure in it, though, as well for the cattle. Yeah, I mean, we've built some corrals and, you know, things of that nature, some loading and handling facilities and stuff like that. And we actually just built our first permanent system in April of, of 2012. So um, when I say we started this with all portable stuff, we, we really did. I mean, we started with portable electric 
uh, fencing from Premier and solar chargers and lots and lots and lots of garden hose. But we've since put in some corrals and handling facilities, and it uh, definitely makes makes life easier. So, um, how do you, how do you put that together? I mean, what have, what have you built for the permanent infrastructure as far as the permanent fencing? Um, well, the permanent fencing is actually kind of unique. Um, we've been working with a division of the USDA that's called NRCS. It's the uh, Natural Resource Conservation Service, uh, which we can talk more about here in a little bit. Um, but uh, one of the guys that works for the NRCS, um, which is a really outstanding outfit uh, within the federal government, and that's, that's rare for me to say that, but they really are great, uh, he had um, gotten connected with uh, a couple of Amishmen down in southern Indiana that have, like, acres, and I mean literally acres, of anything fiberglass you can think of. And uh, he had put together some specifications for building fences, the posts, out of these fiberglass posts. And when I, I don't mean like a little fiberglass rod. Uh, I mean like the actual, like our line posts are about two and a half inches in diameter. And it's, it's used oil and gas rigging piping that mostly comes out of Pennsylvania. And then our end posts are these big, like they're 10-inch diameter, 10-foot-long, um, big, like, water piping. And they come in 30-foot lengths, and these guys chop them up. And we actually use those for posts. We drive them. The little ones, we drive in the ground with a bucket of a truck. The big ones, we hire a contractor to come in and actually hydraulically drive those things right in place. Uh, those things have got to be, when you say permanent, pretty permanent. Those have to have uh, a pretty long life. Yeah, I, I mean, I expect that you know, in, in three or four generations, my my uh, you know, my heirs will be thanking me for for putting these things in because they they don't rot or rust or, or anything. Um, I mean, once you put that thing in, it's there. It's fiberglass. It's not going anyplace. Um, and then the way we put up the wire, this is a time-consuming part, and it's a pain on the front end, but I'll tell you what, once you're done, you're done. We actually drill holes through these posts, and we pull the wire through the posts. There are no insulators. Uh, there's no way for a wire to fall off. Uh, there's no way for it to come apart. Uh, you pull it through. You put your ratchet on. You, 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 you tighten it up, and you're done. I mean, you take your ratchets once a year, tighten them up as required, and that's it. Now, on someone with a piece of land my size, I might put up, if I wanted to paddock, permanent fencing everywhere. You're not going to do that. It's cost prohibitive. So you must be doing some internal dividing as well. And Are you using the electro fence for that? or um, We have used the electro fence, but what we're going back now and doing, um, well, initially what we did, we just took some, like, uh, some of the cheap metal stakes and, and the little plastic insulators, and we took some of the leftover high tensile. And uh, we just, you know, would like spring at, you know, like 600 feet and like subdivide a pasture. And then we'd put a, uh, just a, a $4 gate, plastic gate handle on either end and, you know, connect that to the other end, put an eye bolt through a, uh, uh, through a line post or an end post and hook that gate handle on and, and that was it. What we're going back and doing now is actually setting more of these fiberglass posts just on um, they're further, a lot further apart because you're just carrying one or two wires to subdivide. Uh, so we're, we're kind of ratcheting up internally as well. So we've got permanent fence inside. But you could use the electric uh, electro fence if you wanted to. Absolutely. Very cool. So, I mean, after doing this for this many years, you must have some pretty good resources for people, right? 
Yeah, there are a lot of great resources. Um, it, regardless of what you're thinking, if you're looking at animals from a homesteading aspect, or if you're thinking maybe I want to raise a few extras and sell them, or if I want to do this full-time, I would highly recommend Acres USA. Um, that's a magazine I, I told you about some many months ago. It You just learn so much. I mean, there's, there's gardening, and there's dairy, and there's meat production, and there's legal. Uh, it's just all this stuff. It's such a, a great magazine, and they've got such a great um, – uh, resource uh, for books and videos and, and stuff like that. Uh, Let me throw an endorsement on that because you said I, I told you about that like a year ago. What did Ben Falk do that I didn't do? He put one in my hand. Yeah, exactly. You know, that, that's all it was. I went up there and he said, hey, check this out. And I immediately subscribed. I didn't come home and subscribe to it. Like I was on his, his Wi-Fi network to, you know, do emails and handle customer service and immediately just said, well, I'm going to order this. Yeah. It, and, it, and it's it's so superior to things like grit and Mother Earth News. It's it's unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, it is really practical stuff. I mean, you're reading articles from guys that are actually out doing this and make a living farming, and then they'll write an article for Acres USA, or they will write a book. You know, I mean, you'll see stuff in there from Greg Judy and Cody Holmes and Bill South and Alan Nation, you know, all these different guys. Mark Shepard. I mean, it goes on and on. Oh, yeah. Guys well, write for that yeah, place. it's on and on and on. Uh, another another great uh, resource. If you think about doing anything 100% grass, you know, lamb or goats or, or cattle or whatever, is the uh, Sockland Grass Farmer. That is an excellent publication. And again, articles are written uh, by farmers who uh, do this for a living. There's actually some someone I know is an acquaintance of mine from from West Central Indiana, and she writes a lot of articles uh, for the Sockland Grass Farmer. Um, go to conferences. Find out, you know, where the Acres USA conferences, that's a phenomenal conference, or the, the Moses Organic Conference, or even some of the smaller regional conferences. Um, you know, Southern Indiana Grazing Conference last year, uh, I don't know how, but they, they got Greg Duty to come there. I mean, he came and spoke to a room. There's probably, you know, 600 guys in there. It wasn't some big, massive conference, but it's just a wealth of information. You go to a conference and spend a few bucks and, you get so many pearls of wisdom that will save you so much heartache and, and time and money. It's really worthwhile to uh, go and do that. And then, you know, find a mentor. Um, find another local farmer. It, it, even if they're as conventional as conventional can be. I, you know, our tenant farmer uh, that's still row cropping some of our land here that we're not using for our production yet, he, he is as conventional as any other guy out there. But he still has a wealth of knowledge about, you know, how to load a cow into a trailer or how to repair a fence or how to work on a tractor or just any myriad of things. Or, you know, so find a mentor, work on a farm. Who to call when you can't fix something? He's got a network. That's that's a big thing I think people don't realize that I don't care who how you're farming. You know, people that know like you can choose certain things on a tractor. And then there's a point where you're like, I don't have the time, the money or the knowledge to do that. And knowing who to call, who will who will show up and get it done for you when you really need it, that's critical, too. It is absolutely critical. And who won't charge you three times too much. I mean, he's been there, done that. You know, I mean, he, he knows where the good mechanics are at. And, you know, it, it's just just because they don't have the same philosophy of how farming goes that you have doesn't mean you can't learn from them. And that, that's something I had to learn. You know, I, I couldn't find too many uh, grass-based organic farms uh, real close to me when I first 
looked into this. I mean, the nearest one I could find was an hour and a half away, and I actually went and worked on their farm for a whole day just so I could pick their brains. Um, but, you know, our tenant farmer is, is five minutes away, and he's here all the time. And, you know, it's just it's been a wealth of information that he's been able to, uh, to give me on all kinds of things. Um, and then lastly, you know, I kind of mentioned the, the USDA NRCS, and I, I guess this could kind of be, you know, quasi an issue for people maybe. Uh, don't send me hate mail because I don't care. I really believe in it. Um, you know, the old line from Ronald Reagan about we're here from the government and we're here to help, you know, run when people say that. The NRCS really, they, they are just staffed with people that care that are very environmentally conscious. And kind of the NRCS, in a nutshell, what their goal is is to get to decentralize stuff and to get stuff out of row crop production and to get it back into perennial systems and to help people install water systems and grazing systems and fence and all this stuff. And they have some grant money out there. And that's what gets kind of controversial for some people. But it's your tax dollars, and it's actually something that I see is very beneficial because it is slowly decentralizing food production. It's almost like the USDA's way of saying, yeah, you know, this tillage farming we've been promoting real real hard for the last hundred years, not such a good idea. So they've set aside money to help guys put in some of these systems, and you get what's called a cost of share. It's not going to pay for the whole system, but if you build it to their specifications and based on their design, and they sit down with you and ask you what your goals are, you can apply for a grant and you might get a grant grant to build some high tensile fence or to put in some buried water. And let me make sure I explain to people the difference between a grant and a loan. You don't pay a grant back. You do not pay a grant back. And in generally speaking, most grants come with here's the project, complete the project, and they don't come with a lot of additional hooks in your flesh, where a lot of times a lot of subsidization and things like that they tell you exactly how you're going to do it, what you're going to do, what you're going to plant, how long it's going it's to it, it almost lose control where a grant is very project-orientated, correct? Yes, it is very project-orientated. Uh, I can give you a couple of examples. It's like, okay, well, if you get a grant for a fence, it's like, okay, well, you've got to use posts that weigh you know, this much, and it has to be this long, and you've got to put you know, so many feet or inches in the ground. And you've got to use wire that meets these specifications. You know, they don't want you buying really cheap crap. Um, it, they really do make sure that the taxpayers get their money for it. Uh, um, now, unlike C- It's nice they've picked a place to do that because in many other places they don't. So that's good to hear. It is. It is good <laughs> to hear. Now, on planting grasses, I mean, they'll come out and look at something and they'll give you a recommendation and they'll say, well, you need to plant, you know, X pounds of red clover and X pounds of white clover and bluegrass and. Uh, fescue and ryegrass and all that per acre. And you, so, like, you do have to follow that. Yeah, sure. And the only uh, catch, uh, so you know, so to speak, is that, like, if you put in a grass system, you have to keep it in grass for 12 months. Okay. You know? That's who wouldn't. Exactly. I mean, I mean, why would you? As long as you're not telling me you have to spray it with Amelia Penethate, I'm, I'm, I'm good. Right. Because, I mean, we're getting a pool put in. The guy wanted to know, do you want the physical barrier or the uh, herbicide for an above-ground pool? And I said, well, if you bring herbicide on my property, I'm going to kill you. Exactly. He laughed, and then he didn't laugh so much when I didn't laugh back. And then I, I kind of let him off the hook. So as long as I don't have to put an herbicide down or put some genetically modified crap down, 
if you're going to buy my seed, you can tell me what kind of seed I yeah, get. I'm, I'm okay with that. The NRCS looks at like, so if you want to reestablish grasses, they might give you three options. They might say, well, you can totally disc and plow that under. Uh, you can burn it or you can spray with the herbicide. We don't care, you know, if you're, like, wanting to reestablish the pasture, just get rid of what's there. You can use any of these methods. Okay. You know, and and you can talk with them about that. And if they tell you to do something the way you don't want to do it, just don't sign on the dotted line. Uh, I think that's my biggest advice on anybody dealing with a government agency. It doesn't mean they're all bad, but fully understand exactly what you're agreeing to before you sign. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, when I joined the Army, I didn't quite get it. <laughs> so make sure you know what you're uh, signing up for. Right, exactly. But my experience with NRCS has been nothing sort of spectacular, and it has been a benefit to us. I mean, we've applied for a couple of grants and got some grants to do some stuff. And, it's, I mean, it's helping us and it's helping our business. Um, sure. But I look at it like it's, you know, it's a good investment for the government, I mean, you're you're aiding a farm in food production, you're decentralizing food production, you're enabling a guy's livelihood, he's paying taxes back. It's a reciprocal system. Um, well, I also look at it this way. I think it's only a matter of time before this commercial system that they've created that's degrading our soils at a, a rate that should be alarming all the people that claim to be environmentalists comes to a head. And I think even they are starting to uh, to figure that out, and they're starting to look at some ways to try to mitigate the damage when that comes to a head. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, which you know kind of kind of takes me to my my next point. I mean, I'm an advocate of everyone should, at a very minimum, be growing some of their own food. I don't care if if you have to do it in a pot on a balcony or if you can do it four foot by four foot raised bed or whatever. But I think. If you have the space, you should be gardening and you should have some laying hens. And if you can't have laying hens where you're at, move. Um, you know, <laughs> do that at a minimum. And, you know, then beyond that, if you can't do this other stuff, if you can't raise meat chickens, if you can't raise pigs or beef or lamb or anything, that's okay. You know, that's not everybody's cut out for it and everybody has the space for it or the time or, you know, there's any number of issues that can keep somebody from doing that but support a local farmer. And I'll tell you why. The more local farmers you support, if we ever do have a major disruption in food supply, if you've been supporting that local farmer and you've helped him build his business and he's got a sustainable business, he's, he's going to live through that, that blast. I mean, he's still going to be producing food. And he's, he's going to remember you having supported him when times were good and now times are bad. You know, go out and support these guys wherever you're at so that we do have food systems in place. Because, you, the, yeah, our, our vertically integrated food system is just a big, ticking time bomb. Anyone yeah, I won't say the actual word, but it's what we used to call in the military a Charlie Foxtrot. And you can you can complete the uh, the anachronym for yourself there. That That's what we've got there. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then uh, kind of... Kind of one of my, my final points was, you know, in thinking about the, the long-term sustainability, quote-unquote, of sustainable farming, um, the, you know, there was a an episode, and I can't remember the number. I want to say it was in the 700s, and people can look this up. But you had a guy on, and it was, this is going to sound a little bit odd, but it was about fermentation. I want to say it was like Ask Brian on, yep, on fermentation. It. Really great episode on fermenting food and everything, but kind of, like two thirds of the way through that interview, you guys kind of 
kind of went down the path of paleo diet, and he really, really knowledgeable guy. So we're talking a lot about all grass, that meats, and how lean they are, and paleo and all that stuff. And I got to tell you, it really got me thinking that even though we're buying locally raised GMO-free grains, it's still predicated on cheap oil. I mean, that that is what makes that massive amount of, of effort even possible, is, is cheap fuel to go and plant, harvest, and store, and transport all these grains. And, you know, looking down the road five years, ten years, I mean, I've already decided in my mind, you know, we're going to keep raising chickens, we're going to keep raising pigs, but we, we definitely want to add lamb. I mean, that's, that's a no-brainer. Um, and I've really been investigating, trying to figure out ways to do rabbits 100% on grass so that in 5, 10, 15 years down the road, I mean, I, I could see us getting to a point where fuel is so expensive and grain is so difficult to raise and the soils are just so shot. We're either going to have to import grain from places like Brazil at an exuberant cost, or we're going to have to go to all grass meats. And that's what that interview kind of got me thinking about, look, looking ahead. Um, there's nothing wrong with raisins and chickens and pigs and, and stuff and using using grains now while it's available. But long term, I think people should be thinking about rabbit and lamb and beef as their primary sources of meat. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think there's also some things that can be done with eventually coming off some of the, the traditional grain and going to more to of a protein-based seed. So, like, one of the things that amazed me, and I don't know exactly how this would ever play into farming and raising livestock, uh, other than I know chickens like it, is the first time I ever let a lamb's quarter plant completely go to seed. I got a gallon and a half of seed off a single uh, uh, lamb's quarter plant. And the protein quantity in those is huge. And that's a, that's a plant that if there's any moisture in the ground, if there's any fertility at all, it will survive. And, you know, I, I wonder how things like that can be kind with maybe, maybe not with eliminating grain, but reducing it even further. Right. And then grass and then bring in things like lamb's quarter, goose foot, quinoa, amaranth, these, these plants that are so much more uh, sustainable and so much more hardy. And if you start looking at things like um, heirloom sorghums brought in with that, because uh, then you've got a silage, a grass, and a grain, that maybe there's this place where these things start to converge. And to be, to be fair to everybody, we haven't really, really examined that yet. We haven't really started to do research on that and prove, because it might be like flop, Right, or it might be the answer, we, and we really just don't know yet. We don't. I mean, I'm sure there are people out there experimenting with it now. I mean, I'm certain that I haven't had a unique thought um, look, looking forward, and you know, just trying to avoid the great grain debacle, you know, when it does come to an end. Um, but I think it's, it's going to take a lot more producers to meet the, the protein needs of a nation. You know, you can't. It, it only works now because of that vertically integrated system and all that grain that we're producing cheaply. Uh, well, I mean, and you have to ask yourself, what if we what if we got really creative? What if we got rid of true green Kemlon and had true green grazing rabbits, right? Right. And, and started to put rabbits on lawns because we have, I don't remember the number. I think it was in one of Greg Judy's presentations. It was some ridiculous number. It was like 60 million acres of lawn. 
and it's being used for nothing right now. And there is this kind of move toward local food. And people, I think there's more desire right now for local produced food than there is local produced food. I, I would absolutely agree with that. I mean, like I said, we're, we're turning away customers. You know, I'm getting emails about well, when can I get, you know, a whole pig? Or when, I can, when can I get a half of a cow? And I'm, you know, I, I'm telling them, well, you know, for a pig, it's you know, five, six months. For a cow, it's a year, maybe. And that's if somebody drops off my list. Um, you know, and it's there. there is definitely opportunity out there. Um, it's not the easiest job in the world. Farming It's so daggone hard, and so much can go wrong. I mean, look, raising chickens on pasture, you have a 100-degree heat index for 24 days in a row. Stuff goes wrong. But yeah, birds die, plain birds, and simple. Bird, yeah, they, yeah, they, they die. Uh, cows lose weight or maintain weight if you're lucky. Um, but there is a lot of opportunity. You just got to have you got to have the right personality, and um, you, you've really got to have uh, uh, an energizer bunny mentality. You know, just keep going and going and going and going and going. That's what it takes. Yeah. You know, my thought is that if we can get more people producing some of their own food, and we can take pressure off the mass-produced food system, then maybe people can actually afford to buy high-quality food for the price that it's worth. So if a person is even producing 20-25% of what they eat, then that portion of their budget that had been going to buy cheap food can now be applied to buying high-quality food. That smells more opportunity. I think that the reality is if there were more people farming sustainably, that we would evolve the system and it would become more efficient. The reason that we can grow a chicken in a chicken house of horrors, that Costco can afford to have grown delivered, butchered, and rotisserie cooked for four ninety five is because that system is remarkably, say whatever you want about it from a quality perspective, but it's remarkably efficient. And it's efficient because so many people do it. And if we can move sustainable farming practices into much more of an in-demand and, de- and developed environment, those efficiencies probably can improve there. And if we could get I know you talked about some of the good government does, but if we can get government out of the way of some of the inefficiencies, I think we could we could we could ramp that up a lot faster. Oh yeah, I agree. I agree, and I, I think it's going to happen because our going to have to our circumstances are going to necessitate. I mean, there's just you, you can't look at the picture, you know, twenty thirty years down the road and really come to any other kind of conclusion. You know, we we have no topsoil left in the Mississippi Basin. It's gone. It's in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, we're, we're, we're living on borrowed time with this system. And uh, Yeah, people talk about the Federal Reserve's unsustainability all the time, and um, the Federal Reserve is, is almost permaculture compared to modern agriculture and what it does to topsoil. Right, and that's, I why, mean, and that's why I mentioned the NRCS, just because I want people to know that there is a good resource out there. And they're not perfect. They're not completely organic or anything like that. But it's just it is a good resource. And it is, it's, hey, look, at least it's pointed in the right way. It's kind of like we discussed earlier. Is a Cornish cross chicken on pasture ideal? No. But it's a hell of a lot better than a Tyson chicken house with, you know, 40,000 birds in it. I mean, Standing up to their armpits in feces, it, which it, is what you're, yeah. Yeah, it's a step. The only thing worse than the chicken houses to me are the trucks. And if you start looking for pictures of them, they're very hard to come by. Yeah. They do a lot to keep those away because the chicken on the top is literally shitting on like eight layers of chickens below it. Yep. 
and that is the last um, the last run for that chicken. That so if you happen to be getting the chicken on the bottom of that pile, you, you've not just got we've talked we talked in your last episode about how they're processed, but also you're getting a chicken that went down the highway, you know, with eight to ten other chickens crapping on top of it on its way to slaughter. And you don't have to be a germaphobe to realize that's probably not healthy. No, it's not healthy. And again, I mean, when you can have a 23 plus percent contamination rate from salmonella after butchering, and that's passable by the USDA standards, it, you've got a problem with your food system. You know. I, I'll tell you this: I had a person recently um, ask me how I could justify paying fifteen to twenty dollars for a chicken versus five. And I said, I want you to do me a favor. Just humor me. Go out and buy one good quality um, grass-fed pastured chicken or a good organic chicken or even a good all-natural high-quality chicken and then go buy Tyson, Purdue, Sanderson Farms, whatever. Just get two chickens and make two chickens and humor me. And don't even worry about how they taste. Open the packaging and smell the two chickens. And if you have to ask me, after that, why it's worth paying more for the quality chicken, you have the worst allergies on planet Earth and you can't smell. Because when you open Purdue or Tyson or whatever, the chickens freaking stink. And people think that's what chicken smells like. You work with chickens every day. Chicken poop stinks. But when you butcher a chicken, you know very well the chicken does not smell like that. Only commercially produced chickens have that. It's a very distinctive stink. You can put five things that stink in front of me. And let me smell them one at a time blindfolded. And I'll tell you when you get to the stinky chicken. And whatever that smell exactly is, it doesn't belong in the human body. No, it, it doesn't. I mean, it, it, yeah, I mean, we covered that the last time, but it, it really messes with your health. I mean, chicken shouldn't be yellow and slimy and smelly. And it is, a, I don't know what exact, I know what you said about the salmonella and the uh, chicken poop soup, basically, that they dip these things in with the chlorine. But there's a smell to a commercial chicken. Nothing else in the world smells like it. And it ain't good. Whatever it is, it ain't good. Yeah, it's nothing I want to eat. No. No. So um, you care about this enough, and there's been enough interest in what you're doing, that you now have a way that you're helping other people who want to get started doing this type of thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. So after... After my first interview with you, I mean, I got a lot of emails and two phone calls, and I had people come to the farm. And I, I'm not, I'm not kidding you when I when I tell you. And, and fortunately, it's a time of year I, I had time I could do this because uh, I'm, you know, self-employed full time. And it was in February, and in February we're just kind of sitting around by the wood fire all day. I literally responded to emails for three days straight. I'm not kidding. I mean, I replied to probably a hundred emails and uh it's it was a lot of fun i mean a lot of neat relationships have come out of that and um um you know i've met some interesting people and people came to the farm and now there's there's other people out there raising pigs and, and chickens and asking questions and um but it, you know it's kind of kept going and kept going and i love helping people and i love giving information away and showing people how to do this but uh, I finally got to the point. It's like, okay, I got to centralize this information so I can say, just go here and read this article on brooder management. And so, um, at the request of my wife and actually some other people in the TSBI who reached out to me, 
we started a new website, which is simply DarbySimpson.com. And there's not a ton of information out there yet. We just got it up this spring. Um, but there is some good information out there about what we talked about today, kind of the nuts and bolts of, of how to raising beef, chicken, and pork. And uh, what I've been doing is putting some, uh, you know, some free information out there for people to read. And, uh, if, you know, if they want, they can take advantage. They can shoot me an email with a single question, and I'll answer that, whatever's going on. Um, but kind of what we had to do was sort of draw a line in the sand at some point and say, you know, if you if you want help or if you need help, if you're, you're homesteading or if you're thinking about doing this, you know, to make a little bit of a, a living, then we've set up consulting uh, consultation business where people, it's one-on-one with me. It is customized to their operation and what their goals are. And we cover everything from nuts and bolts how-to to the finances of it, of marketing and how to set up a business, um, how to cash flow that business with other people's money. And just hey, whatever it is you want to talk about, whatever it is you need to learn, we can do that in a one-on-one session. That's awesome, man. And again, folks, the website is DarbySimpson.com. And when you're talking about the marketing, the cash flow, and the financing, I think that I would tell you that the main reason that people that go into small-scale farming fail is they don't understand the business side. So the animal husbandry, the land management, that's one piece of the puzzle. But if you don't marry the business skills to go along with it, you're not going to survive. And a, a, a quote you made that I've used many times in other business ventures since I heard you say it, was Excel never lies. Excel never lies. It never lies. So you price things where they have to be priced in order to make a profit, or you don't do it. Uh, I even had uh, somebody in the permaculture world ask me about pricing a an event with a big-name speaker and everything, and my response was Excel never lies. Right? I don't give a damn what you think people see as fair. You gotta pay the guy to come in, you gotta fly him in, you gotta run the event, you gotta pay for materials. You drop all that into a spreadsheet, you factor a profit margin into it that's workable, and that gives you your number, and you divide that by your number of seats, and that's your number, and if anybody doesn't want to pay it, they don't get a chicken or they don't get a seat. However that works out, because we can't be in business to lose money, not for very long anyway. If you want to sustainably farm, you also have to have a sustainable business to go along with it. You do, and I, I don't have a business background. I mean, I've just had to learn that as I go. Um, my engineering background kind of helped me. But you have a farming business track record. That's more important than a you know a business degree background. Right, but I mean, honestly, look, there, there are people out there that are way more skilled than I am at raising these critters that know more than I do. I mean, I've, I'm at it. This is my seventh year. I mean, I've got a pretty good amount of experience. But where I really feel like I can help people is on the business side to avoid some major mistakes. I mean, if I can travel back in time and spend, you know, 100 bucks to talk to myself for a couple hours, oh, my gosh, I'd do it 10 times over. Because sure. all the heartache and time, not even so much the money, but the time. I mean, one little pearl of wisdom that can save you hours upon hours. You know, it, it's just, and and that's that's you know really what the consulting business was set up to do was kind of for, for, and it can be for homesteading. I mean, it doesn't have to be because you want to have a business. If you just want the know-how, we can do that too. But I think where I can really really help people that they probably won't find that too many other places because I haven't seen it done too many other places is, is on the business side married to the farming. Awesome, Darby. Well, again, folks, the website is DarbySimpson.com. There'll be a link to that in today's show notes, along with a link to 
the episodes Darby mentioned today, which is both, uh, or actually three episodes. The uh, episode Darby was on in the past, the Brian Davis episode, and the listener feedback episode that goes into detail on Darby's chicken tractors. And again, uh, the website, if you're looking for some assistance or some help, DarbySimpson.com. And I would say that even though with what he just said that he can help you on the business side, if you're just looking at the homesteading side, if it really matters to you, if you really want to get it done and avoid the mistakes that cost a lot of time and time always burns money, business, or just in your life, uh, check out what Darby's doing and see if he can help you out. And Darby, with that, man, thanks for being on the show with us today. Yeah, hey, Jack. Thanks for having me back. I had a blast and uh, really encourage people to use the website, shoot me an email, and I'll, I'll try and answer any questions that, uh, that come through. And, um, hey, uh, Paul Wheaton, if you're listening, hey, buddy, if you want to send me a whole huckleberry pie, I will eat it lock, stock, and barrel. <laughs> he did send me one, and I'll, I'll tell you, I'm so proud of myself. Uh, being paleo, I didn't eat it right away. I put it aside when we had a, a big group of people over here. I shared it because uh, it was a giant pie. So if he sells you one, or se- sells you one, if he sends you one, you, you're in for some eating. It's uh, it's not your mama's huckleberry pie. It is a big, thick, and a wonderful tasting pie. So Paul. In spite of the fact that we don't agree with 100% of what you said, and I don't expect anybody to agree with 100% of what I say, uh, thank you for sending me a pie, and maybe you could send one to Darby. Yeah, <laughs> and, you know, hey, you know, I'll, I'll share. You know, Frank Sharp Jr. lives close enough. We could drive down here and we could eat a pie together. <laughs> well, again, Darby, man, thank you for being here. Thank you for all the uh, the work that you do, all the effort that you put out, the, the, the hours and hours that you spent answering uh, questions for the audience, and I think it's a great idea that you took that and spun that off into a consulting business. So remember, folks, uh, DarbySimpson.com is the website if you'd like to engage uh, Darby for some consulting. Very reasonable cost uh, for a lot of informa- a lot of uh, wisdom and information. Uh, and a guy that's been there and done that made the mistakes and can help you avoid them. Uh, additionally, uh, you remember that if you are a member of the uh, Survival Podcast Member Support Brigade, Darby does offer a discount for his discount and all other discounts. Go to um, go to the Member Support Brigade. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com. Click on Members. Existing Members Login is right at the top of the page. Click that Login to your account and go to the Benefits section. Look for DarbySimpson.com or whatever uh, vendor you're looking for. And remember, whenever you're getting anything, uh, you might as well check the Member Support Brigade first to see if there's somebody there that provides it. We have a lot of great providers there. Again, with that, hey, Darby, man, thanks for being here today. And with that, this has been Jack Spearco today along with Darby Simpson, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
Revolution is you. 